Hello and welcome to the Medici Podcast, Episode 40, New World Order. time this video is up, I'll also have a review of The Serpent Queen um, available for patrons on Patreon. Also, I'm going to try to put one more episode out just before the end of the year, which will finally introduce Martin Luther, which I'm sure you've all been waiting for. Unfortunately, because of work reasons and other complications, my holiday plans are completely in free fall, even just a week before the Christmas season officially starts. So I'm not sure if I'll have the time or actually be in a good place to record. So apologies in advance if that's the case. At the very least, the next episode will come out after New Year's, but I am going to try to have it out in time for people's holiday driving. And as always... Go to MedicinePodcast.com for maps, bibliographies, images, and more, along with ways to make one-time donations. You can also support the podcast on Patreon for $5 a month. Or if you like the podcast but can't afford to support it, you can tell the history lover and your wife about it. When last we left Giovanni de' Medici, he had exceeded even his father's wildest ambitions by becoming Pope Leo X. So, from here on out, we'll start to refer to him as Leo. There's too many Giovannis in the story of the Medici, anyway. The new pope jettisoned any plans that his predecessor and mentor, Julius II, had for the liberation of Naples from Spanish rule. He made his new priorities clear, or at least his priorities other than pampering his beloved elephant, Hanno. He appointed as the chief papal secretaries Jacopo Sadoletto and Pietro Bembo, who were both cardinals but were better known for their scholarship and literary writings than their piety and theological work. One of Pope Leo's first proclamations was that he would pay for any ancient Greek or Latin manuscript brought to his agent's attention and would seek to publish it. In this way, a manuscript of the first five books of the First century Roman historian Tacitus's histories was found in a German monastery and copied over for a printing press in Rome. So Leo X may very well have been the reason why we have as much of Tacitus, one of the most important sources on ancient Roman history, as we do. In addition to his continued sponsorship of the University of Rome, he founded an academy for the study of the Greek language. He even received a delegate from the Syriac Church, based roughly in Syria and India and modern-day Iraq and Iran, and convinced him to stay in Rome and teach lessons in the Syriac and Chaldean languages from the Aramaic language family, the first time these languages were probably taught in Western and Central Europe since antiquity. Leo X's academic open-mindedness was even extended to the Jews. He hired Jewish physicians and musicians, 
and gave permission for the establishment of the first Hebrew printing press in Rome. In response to a debate across Europe over whether or not Jewish books should be printed and studied or outright banned, Leo X came down firmly on one side. He gave the Christian publisher Daniel Bomberg permission to publish the Talmud, a core collection of rabbinic texts. It was to be the first time to complete 63 volumes of the Talmud with scholarly commentaries would be printed. However, either out of a personal inclination or as a concession to anti-Semitic critics, Leo stipulated that the printed editions should also include anti-Jewish polemics. However, Daniel Bomberg managed to convince Leo to drop that requirement, and instead, the first four volumes were dedicated to the Pope. Unfortunately, this hurt the sales of these early editions, since not many Jews would hold their noses and buy copies of the Talmud dedicated to the head of the church that persecuted them. Whatever his motives in originally requiring anti-Jewish polemics in the Talmud, Leo was still generous toward the Jewish community in other, more tangible ways. He rescinded a law passed in the papal territory of Avignon that required Jews to wear an identifying badge, and lifted several taxes imposed solely on Jewish inhabitants of the papal states. For all his lofty scholarly and humanitarian interests, though, Leo X had a rather crude sense of humor especially by modern standards. Like so many elites from the era, Leo X's idea of comedy was watching the antics of little people. Over the years, many dwarf jesters and acrobats joined the papal payroll. To give you an idea of what Leo considered the height of comedy, we know of one little person who made the Pope laugh uproariously when he ate 60 eggs in one sitting. Also, Leo had a thing for elaborate, practical jokes. He announced that he would hold an old-fashioned Roman triumph, a parade once offered to victorious generals in the days of ancient Rome, for an abbot named Giacomo Barabella, who was famous for two things, his monstrous ego and his awful poetry. Leo convinced him that the Legendary poet Petrarch once received a Roman triumph, and a great poet like Giacomo deserved nothing less. Giacomo's family pleaded with him not to accept the honor from the Pope, knowing it was actually a cruel prank, but he refused to listen to them. Instead, to cheering and gawking and laughing crowds, Giacomo rode Hanno the Elephant through the major streets of Rome, on a bejeweled saddle and golden stirrups, surrounded by trumpet players. He was dressed in the lavish purple robes of a Roman emperor. Frightened by the noise in the crowds, however, Hanno refused to cross a bridge over the river Tiber. Giacomo tried to climb off Hanno and instead was thrown off, falling into some mud. Nor did becoming Pope put a stop to Leo X's obsession with hunting. During his pontificate, the hunting trips and the expensive after-parties he hosted at the Villa Magliana near the old Roman town of Porto were the talk of Italy. Leo also liked to shower money and gifts on any peasants he came across during his hunting excursions. As much as his generosity toward the poor and toward scholars and writers and artists won him acclaim, it was a nightmare for the papal treasurers. 
One of them complained, The Pope could no more save a thousand ducats than a stone could fly up to the sky. Soon enough, the budget surplus left behind by Pope Julius II was gone, and instead the papacy was once again in debt. Still, whatever the cost, Rome during the pontificate of Leo X was one of the highlights of the Italian Renaissance, much like Florence during the time of Lorenzo the Magnificent. To quote the book The Medici Popes by the early 20th century historian Herbert Vaughn, Certain it is that the court of the Vatican under Leo X was in reality the most brilliant, the most cultured, and withal the most extravagant that Europe had beheld since the days of imperial Rome, and that Leo himself moved perpetually in an atmosphere of flattery and splendor such as no pontiff had hitherto experienced. While Leo was arguably exceptional among the popes in the attention he gave to scholarship, literature, and public entertainments, he was no different in using papal power to enrich and empower his family. Indeed, if anything, Leo's experiences taught him the importance of using the church to protect the family's interests. He made his cousins Giulio de' Medici and Luigi di Rossi cardinals, and also made cardinals out of his nephews, Bernardo Salviati, Innocenzo Cibo, and Niccolo Ridolfi. As for Florence, Leo left his brother Giuliano as the public face of the regime. It is true that Giuliano rarely made a step without following instructions given to him by Pope Leo and Cardinal Giulio. However, since the day Giuliano went to the Palazzo della Signoria, dressed in the clothing of a middle-class patrician like his father Lorenzo the Magnificent would, in order to formally request that the law banning the Medici from Florentine territory be rescinded, Gioiano proved that he understood Florentine politics far better than his brother Piero did. In his possibly apocryphal statement summing up his sons, Lorenzo the Magnificent described Giuliano as kind. In fact, Giuliano was well-liked by the Florentine people and the nobles of Italy alike. What we know of his actions in life do somewhat prove that he was a remarkably selfless person. Leo had the idea of further securing the Medici's future by taking the Duchy of Urbino, which was a fiefdom under papal control in central Italy, and giving it to Giuliano even if it meant ousting the current duke, Pope Julius's nephew, Francesco Maria della Rovere. But Giuliano refused, instead simply taking the title of commander of the papal armies. Such a refusal is unique in many historical eras, but especially in the politically cutthroat world of Renaissance Italy. Unfortunately for Leo, elevating his family was not his only foreign policy concern. Although he dropped the previous pope's aggressive policy of trying to force all the barbarians out of Italy, he remained wary of further expansion by the European powers. So Leo panicked when it looked like King Fernando II of Aragon and Naples, who was also ruling the Spanish kingdom of Castile as regent, Louis XII of France, and Emperor Maximilian of the Holy Roman Empire, were about to agree on a lasting peace. It was not at all outside the realm of possibility that the three would reach an agreement where Italy would be carved up between the three of them, which indeed is 
what would eventually happen. So Leo X tried to enter a secret agreement with Louis XII, where the Pope would not oppose him trying to invade Milan again. And in exchange, Louis would also invade Naples, but allow the Pope to set up an independent kingdom of Naples, with Giuliano de' Medici as king. However, this agreement fell through for unknown reasons, either because Louis XII couldn't embark on another Italian campaign, or Giuliano refused a hypothetical crown of Naples, too. So instead, Leo shifted strategies. He decided to throw a wrench into plans to marry Louis XII's daughter Claude to Maximilian and Fernando's grandson Charles, whom we will meet shortly. To do so, Leo reached out to Cardinal Wolsey, the chief minister of England's new young king, Henry VIII, and instructed him to steer the king toward an alliance with France. Leo hoped this would prevent a Spanish-French imperial triumvirate, and instead create two power blocks, England and France on one side, and the Holy Roman Empire and Spain on the other and that these two power blocks would keep each other in check. Unfortunately, when it came to European power politics, Leo was standing on shifting sands. When his pontificate began, the old generation of Europe's monarchs was dying out, and a new blood of ambitious sovereigns in charge of vaster, more powerful states than had been seen in Europe since the days of Charlemagne were coming into their own and establishing a new world order. First in April of 1509, Henry VIII of England inherited the throne from his father, Henry VII. Henry found himself in charge of a country that was still in some ways recovering from a generations-long civil war, that it wiped out most of its royal family and a sizable chunk of its high nobility. A scholar and an athlete who believed in both humanism and the old ideals of chivalry Henry was determined to make England a major player and a model for humanistic rule in Europe. In France, Louis XII had found himself an old man without a direct heir. So when Henry VIII offered to seal their alliance by offering his young sister Mary Tudor's hand in marriage, Louis happily agreed. Up until the marriage, Louis showered Henry VIII with letters eagerly inquiring about his new bride. Much less enthusiastic, the 18-year-old Mary Tudor made her brother agree to allow her to marry any man of her choosing after her elderly husband would die. And in fact, just over two months after Mary arrived in France, the happy royal groom passed away. Jokesters across France speculated that the king died from exhaustion, trying to father an heir on a much younger and very attractive woman. Students at the University of Paris even put on a play where, in a not very subtle or respectful allegory, the king of France is carried off to hell while trying to ride a young horse. Incidentally, Mary held Henry to his promise, whether he liked it or not. She secretly married her brother's young, strapping friend, Charles Brandon, much to Henry's chagrin. Meanwhile, on Louis's death, thanks to Salic law, the crown of France passed to a cousin of Louis, 
who became King Francois I by April of 1515. Like Henry, he was an attractive young man interested in both athletics and matters of the mind. He was also an insatiable Italianophile, who would be hell-bent on reclaiming Naples and Milan for France. Last but certainly not least was the odd man out of the three, Charles von Habsburg. Arguably, no royal heir in all of European history hit the inheritance jackpot as much as he did. Through his mother, Joanna, he inherited claims on the Spanish kingdoms of Aragon and Castile and the kingdom of Naples. And because of Joanna's insanity, he was able to claim authority over these territories while his poor mother was confined to a castle in central Spain. His father, Philip, was himself the heir to both the Duchy of Burgundy and a host of other titles and lands belonging to the Habsburg family. So basically, when Charles fully came into his inheritance, he was the ruler of most of the modern-day Netherlands and Spain and its already vast colonial empire, along with Austria, southern Italy, and Sicily. On top of all that, in 1519 he was, like his grandfather and great-grandfather, elected Holy Roman Emperor. It's through the numbering of Holy Roman Emperors that we call Charles, Charles V. And no wonder some people believe Charles V, or some descendant of his, would be the universal emperor who would reunite Christendom under one monarch, just in time for the apocalypse and the return of Jesus Christ. This is why even Henry VIII was perfectly happy with the idea of marrying his daughter Mary to Charles V, who wouldn't want to be the father-in-law to the universal emperor. It was when Charles scuttled the match and instead married Isabella of Portugal that Henry VIII became obsessed with fathering a male heir. But I'm getting ahead of myself. From the start, Charles V's role as the possible ruler of all Christendom wasn't anything to envy. It was one thing to rule an empire, but Charles V's dominions were a patchwork of territories with different languages, different laws and political customs, and different signed agreements between the sovereign and their subjects. Even Castile and Aragon, despite being neighboring countries with a shared history, were considerably different in how much power they allowed their monarchs to wield and what roles their representative bodies, the Cortezes, played. So Charles was constantly at work trying to hold this fractured empire together. In fact, he may very well have spent over a quarter of his life just traveling back and forth between Austria, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Spain. Also, while Charles may have won the inheritance lottery, he was less lucky with the genetics lottery. For starters, unlike Francois or Henry, he was not all that physically fit, and instead was rather sickly, specifically suffering from epilepsy. Plus, he had the infamous Habsburg jaw, which caused his lower jaw to jut out. You can even see the jaw in several portraits of the emperor, one of which I'll post on the website. According to one story, Charles V was riding through the Spanish countryside when a farmer shouted to him, Your Majesty, shut your mouth. The flies in this country are very insolent. Charles will come to play a very important role in the Medici story. For now, though, the Pope and Giuliano de' Medici 
felt it wise to saddle up to the newly crowned King Francois of France. Like many others, Francois found Giuliano charming and intelligent, and spent a great deal of time just chatting with him. He even granted Giuliano a French noble title, the Duke of Namur, making Giuliano the first Medici to ever receive an aristocratic title. Also, Francois arranged for him to marry his aunt, Filiberta of Savoy. Giuliano truly seemed to have a bright future ahead of him, and any bright future he would receive would also naturally benefit his family. But then, Giuliano fell ill with tuberculosis and died at only the age of 37. He left behind only a five-year-old son, Ippolito, who was born out of wedlock. Ippolito's mother was Giuliano's mistress, a woman from Urbino named Pacifica Brandano, about whom almost nothing can be said, except that modern historians for a while theorize she might be the model for da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Giuliano's death was a terrible blow. Giuliano was popular, well-connected, and likely would have been able to both keep the government of Florence happy and serve as an effective mediator between the Pope and King Francois. And then there was the fact that male Medici descended from Giovanni de' Bici, who weren't either committed to celibacy or considered illegitimate, were becoming rare. Now, though, with Giuliano's death, Leo had to rely on his nephew, Pietro the Unfortunate's only son, Lorenzo, who was, let's say, a less promising prospect than his uncle. We'll meet him next time. For now, though, thank you for listening. Buona notte.